0: Hi, this is Sam Ramji, and you're listening to Open Source Data. Today, we're interviewing Eric Sammer. Eric's been in the tech industry for over 20 years as an engineer, CTO, and most recently, CEO of Decodable. Prior to founding Decodable, he held a number of different roles as an early Cloudera employee. And later, he was the CTO and co founder of Reconna, which was acquired by Splunk in 2017. At Splunk, Eric was a VPN senior distinguished engineer responsible for cloud platform services. He's also the author of the O'Reilly book, Hadoop Operations. Welcome, Eric. So you were pretty early in Hadoop, which in some ways is OG open source data. So I'm really curious to get a sense with everything that you've done. What does open source data mean to you? It's a really broad term.
1: I think my immediate gut reaction is that it probably means either everything to me or nothing at all in that sense. It encompasses everything from database systems, and messaging systems, event streaming systems, query engines, and databases. But it also these days, I think, encompasses what I would think of as like individual data infrastructure for a single person. There's lots of interesting stuff happening with things like DuckDB and SQLite and Python and Pandas, which I'll admit, That is less my world. I'm more sort of the data substrate, database systems kind of thing. When I think about open source data infrastructure, I really think about the systems that increasingly have displaced a lot of commercial infrastructure. The low-level core database systems, Postgres, MySQL, Kafka, Pulsar, like you name it. I think the entire data infrastructure world is effectively open source at its core these days, minus a couple of really notable exceptions, but for the most part, it really is open source these days.
0: It's so interesting that it started out as sort of single instance databases that run on your laptop, like MySQL, right? and then started to grow into like, hey, how do I create a MySQL cluster? Can that even be a thing? What do I do with the application layer? And then Ingress became open source and we started calling it Postgres and then The really big, crazy changes started coming around right around when you were getting into Hadoop, frankly, right? The Cassandra was coming out, Mongo was being developed. This whole idea that you needed to invert the logical process that people had come at query languages and query stores for were now flipping around. And it was just this vibrant alchemical reactor, right? of All these different things happening, and you're right at the core of open source data going from works on my machine to how could you possibly build a vast data infrastructure that lets you experiment and build a new business if it's not open source.
1: And I think there's a couple of really interesting things that happen in the open source community. Like one, you can try really random ideas. So it's not totally unusual to sit around and go, what if we decoupled storage and compute and things that fundamentally might not drive margin gains or the kinds of things that the more established enterprise vendor looks at you can just kind of like well what if we just wrote a new language i think it's looker working on a new query language yet another attempt at turning the iteration crank on sql but like these things are actually hard to do and get them wide scale adopted and build that mind share of it the other thing that i think open source has done is basically become the de facto APIs for things. We've seen it with storage formats like Apache Parquet and maybe to a lesser extent, Avro or RPC with Protoboth. The lingua franca, if you will, is defined by the community. And now vendors adopt that rather than the other way around. If you go back far enough, open source was about replicating commercial systems. And these days, it's the opposite, which is super interesting to me, super exciting.
0: When do you think that happened? I mean, you've lived through this whole thing over the last 25 years as you've gone from Oracle DBA, you were doing the heavy lifting, making sure these things actually worked all the way to now. And I feel like there was a turning point somewhere in between where it started with that quote of open source only exists to copy and commoditize. And then it flipped around to open source is where the innovation happens. Can you point to a moment in your life where you had that epiphany or was it just a gradual thing?
1: I want to say it was gradual. And I think it started
0: with commoditization
1: of, let's say, database systems. These days, almost any startup in the world, with no disrespect to the operational database vendors, but many people start with Postgres or Minus 2L, and then they sort of like go from there, or Cassandra or any of those kinds of systems. They sort of start there, and then they iterate from there. It's probably unfair to say that all of the innovation comes from open source. I think there's lots of big, crazy ideas like come from open source, but the thing that open source has not yet really figured out how to do, and it's the reason there are so many open core companies, including myself, is that open source projects are not good at User experience, operational efficiency, debuggability, observability. Like this is the place that enterprise companies, enterprise data companies still innovate very heavily. And even things like performance optimization, tweak tune, really nitty-gritty stuff, where you can pay 20 people to sit in a room and stare at assembler code all day and worry about vectorization and SIMD instructions. Like that's the kind of place that there will always be real good commercial reasons to optimize that stuff.
0: Yeah, open source is so interesting as a phenomenon. It reminds me of simulated annealing, if you think about that particular search heuristic, right? Once you get it out there, it has a chance of finding where it belongs, and then you can build a company around it. I think the classical expression is open source is great at value creation, but pretty poor at value capture. And so at a certain point, to be able to pay people to do those best fit parts of the landscape requires you to capture enough value to pay people right to keep that sustainable this is a fascinating era we're in joseph jacks recently published a perspective on the last few years starting in january 2020 in venture capital and said there's 24 billion dollars of funding have gone into open core companies which is just a stunning number to say the time for open core is here and it'd be fascinating to look at how many of those are data what led you to go to Cloudera and Hadoop, you were already working on Hadoop technology before that, I think, when you're in magnetic. And you were probably coming into the problems of scale when you were working in Cheetah Mail. I often think about mail systems as being like one of the most complex distributed database problems. And you have all the same things of PubSub queuing, right? Did I get that? delivered once and only once, was it in, in order, is everything happening, which was the birth of, strangely, Cassandra, right, to do uh, Facebook messaging and mail as well. So there's this live point where you could go, do I want to go into the operational distributed databases? Do I want to go into the analytical areas? In some ways, people were doing cool stuff with Hadoop back then on HDFS, splitting the difference, like, hey, I could use this for operational store or I could uh, right. use an analytics store. What was happening for you at that moment?
1: I want to tell you that I was really thoughtful and deeply intentional about my career, <laughs> but that's a lie. <laughs> the first half of my career was mostly building internal systems. When I lived in New York, you know, I worked in mostly ad tech related stuff. So like Cheetah Mail, which was acquired by Experian and what Experian at the time referred to as EMS or Experian Marketing Services is basically all the normal click ad tech Stuff that you would expect. It's like impression tracking, conversions, and behavioral targeting systems. Now I'm dating myself, old days, 2007, six. At some point around 2008, 2009, in between a couple of different jobs that I was working at there. I started getting exposure to initially HDFS and then MapReduce, and it solved a couple of very specific problems at some of the companies that I worked with there, some of which are still around today. My background has always been open source centric. So I was actively participating in mailing list discussions, and I was like answering questions on the mailing list as much as I was asking them. And then I saw this tiny company called Cloudera, and they had the bios of everybody at the company. On the website and they were all PhD from this place and PhD from that place. but an amazing team, especially at the time for me personally. So I don't have that deep economic background. And my MO has always been to find people that I think are way smarter than me and want to leech off of them. And I was excited about the technology. I was excited about this team. And I just emailed the then CEO and I just said like, you're going to hire me and here's why. And it worked. He sent me a message back and he said, here's a free pass to the Hadoop world. And this is like when it was being hosted in a tiny little New York City hotel that was hosted of 300 people or something like that. And I interviewed sitting on the floor eating bad box sandwiches with Aaron Kimball, who's now the CTO over at Zymergen, doing bacteria research. I got connected to those guys. And then from then on, I just got pulled into this world of not just data infrastructure, but with a strong academic background at the time. I was already tight with the UC Berkeley Amp Lab and what later became Rise Lab and Spark came out. And so I went from being this high school dropout who was excited about open source software to like hanging out with a bunch of postdocs talking about vector clocks. It just was this huge pull into this world. And I was just so excited about everything that I was learning that I just never looked back. And from then on, I was super excited about building and working at companies that were tech first. Tech was the product. It wasn't a means to an end. As much as being on the vendor side can be sort of tricky sometimes, getting to think about distributed systems and database systems all day, every day, it is the Kool-Aid I cannot stop drinking. It's just so
0: exciting. It is such a spectacular testimony to the power of contributing to community. Because you were in there, you were exploring, and you were generous. You weren't just like, here, let me figure stuff out write some internal docs. You were answering lots of questions. And I think community, especially with open source technology, has this power to generate serendipities. You can't predict the serendipity, but you ended up smack in the middle of one. So I think if anybody's listening and inspired by your life story, I think focusing on community And giving back and being curious and being in things with people who you're confident are smarter than you is a fantastic life heuristic. I can't tell you enough
1: how much answering some questions on a mailing list fundamentally writing some bad code and pushing stuff. I was an early Gen 2 Linux guy. Like I was one of them mucking around with compilers and building like GLibC from source and bootstrapping the kernel and just messing around with kernel drivers. That stuff allowed me with an 11th grade education. I'm not shy about this, but I'm also not always as proud of this as people think I should be. But like I'm a high school dropout, right? I have a GED. And like my entire education came from O'Reilly books in the open source community. And if it wasn't for those two things, I'd be pumping gas. I can't explain enough the opportunity that I was very privileged to have and being able to spend some time to work on that stuff.
0: Yeah, this is such a crazy industry, right? Getting paid to be curious and learn and yeah. share what we're learning with people. Yeah. One of the greatest learning experiences, I think, for many of us is the opportunity to start a company, even if they flame out or end up in various levels of either a spectacular failure or a spectacular mediocrity or or success, right? Or an opportunity to figure out what you're really capable of, how the world really works, get out from all the boxes you've been hidden behind. How does money work? How do you get people to pay you for things so that you can pay people to work on those things? You went off from relative comfort. I would say at Cloudera, where you're an engineering manager doing great work in developer tools, company just absolutely cranking, and then you're like, "I think it's time to start a new company." What pulled you to create Rakana? Probably equal parts hubris and
1: excitement, and again, just sort of being excited about the opportunity that was in front of me. Mean, I mean, I at that point was operating from a very privileged position. I had joined this tiny little nobody company, at least in the grand scheme of things, at 20, 25 people, whatever it was at the time. And I had entered as an engineering manager, director level, whatever. And I basically was willing to do anything these people asked me to do. And they asked me to spend a year and a half or something like that in the field doing professional services, living in data centers, building Hadoop clusters. Sure, you want me to do that? I'll do that. Whatever Mm -hmm. it is, I'll do it. Basically, Mike Olson and that whole sort of crew of folks who are longtime open source people were just nice enough to let me sit in the corner of the biz ops meeting. And so like I got to see them raise a billion dollar round from Intel. I got to see how you built a startup. Multiple rounds of raising, and I got exposed to some VCs throughout the process. Folks like Jerry Chen over at Greylock and Ping Lee over at Excel. You just bump into these people. You're like, you're an interesting person. and You sort of have nice conversations with them. At some point, I was like, wow, I I think that there's a gap here in the market and like this is just a problem that I am excited about solving, which at the time was taking all of that big data infrastructure and applying it to a specific vertical use case, which for us was about observability. We didn't call it that at the time, but it was like log search and metrics because we saw people using Hadoop for that, capturing logs processing logs and capturing metrics and processing metrics. Again, this was 2014 and it was just an exciting opportunity. And there was enough excitement about Hadoop and Cloudera at the time that we wound up being able to raise on the back of that from some really great investors over a general catalyst and then later Google Venture. To your point, I think we did some things well. We did some things not so well. You know, That's probably a longer discussion, but we got certain things wrong and wrong enough that we didn't flame out, but we didn't Buy helicopters and go public. And so we wound up being acquired by Splunk in 2017. But it was just like an amazing opportunity. And people talk about startups being risky. And I just want to say this in this particular climate, you and I have been around the block once or twice. So we've seen this before. But this is like the third recession I'm looking at in my life. And I don't know that it's officially a recession. I'm not an economist or anything like that. I don't make market predictions. But I will say when you look at this and you look at some wonderful companies having to do 20, 30%. Layoffs, you kind of go like, what really is stable? I've always had that sort of thing of like, let's just do the next interesting thing. And I
0: I guess I just didn't worry about it too much. I think maybe the biggest risk is not pushing yourself into your areas of discomfort and growth. Right. If you're not learning, you are certainly dying. I live in that world.
1: You know, my entire life is staring in the mirror, going, why are we making these decisions? This is scary as hell.
0: 2014 was a super interesting time, too, because I think that's about when Elastic was becoming a company, right? Elasticsearch, which was a fork of Lucene and a solution to the problems people had trying to do distributed Lucene because it didn't want to distribute. It wanted to be kind of single node. And then the Elk stack burst out, right? So, of course, you've got Elasticsearch, Logstash, and Kibana. It's like the LAMP stack, but for observability, right? How are you creating all the apps that you need to understand how all your infrastructure is going? You were doing Orcana. All the scale of these problems kind of seems like it all landed on large-scale operations. Splunk looked at Rokana and they're like, we need some of that where we are. And I've become aware subsequently of Splunk doing some pretty extraordinarily large data sets and infrastructure again on open source with some of the work that you were doing, no doubt, probably using some Flink in there somewhere, but also maybe the largest pulsar implementations that I've ever heard of on the order of half a zettabyte. And if anybody's wondering what a zettabyte is, it's a thousand petabytes, which is already quite a lot.
1: There was a lot of really interesting work. And I think Splunk does not get enough respect for the work that they've been doing. And the funny thing is, is that people like you and me, we sort of live by what's happening in the community. And one thing I've learned working in places like Splunk, Cloudera, is that the biggest users of these systems don't tell you what they're doing. One of the interesting things about working at a vendor is to listen to somebody go like, we have the biggest Pulsar deployment. And you're like, sure. You know, <laughs> in your head, you're running down the list of everybody who's 5, 6, 10x that. I don't know. Some of these companies don't get enough credit. But yes, Splunk has, in a lot of ways, been able to do some really exciting things. Obviously, people know it as a log search product. But if you actually look at it through the lens of like an analytic database system, there's actually some really interesting technology there, well-tuned over a very long period of time. But in the time that I was there, I think there was a, a lot of advocating for the adoption of known-to-scale open-source projects and we certainly did a lot with Apache Pulsar. We did quite a lot with Apache Flink. There's other sort of projects that get quite a bit of love inside of Splunk. I don't remember which ones are public. And and certainly Splunk contributes these days a lot to things like open telemetry. Everything from like the edge agent all the way down to what Splunk would call core search. The data ingestion process at Splunk is mammoth. If you think about everything that gets delivered there, and the funny thing is that everybody goes, well, logs, it's okay to lose something. Let me tell you, like if your customer is the compliance and security team, and you're like, it's cool, it's just logs, it's cool if we lose a couple, let me tell you, they do not like that answer.
0: It's amazing how touchy lawyers get about that stuff.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, I don't know, lots of really, really cool stuff wound up happening at Splunk.
0: They've had pretty good open source linkage for a long time ago. One of my favorite talks, actually, that I, I went to was 14 years ago. I think 2008, it was OzCon, and one of the Splunk technical co-founders was presenting. And we hadn't heard this term before, and we're like, Splunk, what's Splunk? He's like, well... You know, it's like going into a cave, spelunking. We're just going deep down into the logs. I was like, oh, this is fantastic. (laughs) There is a lesson in developer relations from the first
1: five years of Splunk that I think needs to be studied because you want to talk about product market fit. If you look at the early metrics on Splunk adoption in those first five years of which I was not a part, there were many people long before me who did this work, but they were like wildfire. It is just an incredible study in how you build a community. Not open source necessarily, but community and product and devrel
0: and product market fit. Interesting stuff there. Well, they did what Jeff Lawson and Twilio did so brilliantly too, which is that no matter how senior the person was, they were going to give you a technical demo mm-hmm. and they were going to be able to answer questions about it yeah. and get you like way, way under the command line. And then you know that you can trust this stuff in your infrastructure. There's a harmony there in openness and trust as you're building out this kind of big infrastructure, which takes us to what you're doing today, right? You have not stepped away from the sharp pointy tip of the open source spear, right? Oops, you did it again. And you are in fact driving yet another open source, deep tech, high scale data startup doing Flink and moving data where it wants to go and where it ought to be. So I'd, I'd love to explore with you, Why are these problems so intensely important to solve right now? And what's got you so intensely curious that you had to do this?
1: You know, I feel like you're rubbing my bad decision making in my face on this one, Sam.
0: No, I'm kidding.
1: So, on the decision making that sort of goes into something like this, I'll be honest with you again, I don't know how intentional it is. At my core, I'm probably an engineer. I sort of see a thing that I've seen repeated a thousand times, and you just go, oh my God, we have to stop writing bad versions of this. And I hate this problem so much that I felt like I had to solve it and then never think about it again. Decodable is my attempt to do that. I think that data infrastructure in most enterprises on the batch side has got a stack. Databricks or Snowflake or like one of those kinds of systems, it's DBT, it's Airflow with Astronomer or somebody like that, you know, (laughs) on the orchestration side, Prefect, whatever... Your, your sort of weapon of choice is there's a stack there. When you say the data warehouse, people know what that looks like. When you go upstream of that, it is this absolute chaos of just spaghetti code and piecemeal vendor solutions. Some people are like, well, it's just changed into Capture and ELT, and you just land it in Snowflake, problem solved. And then everybody looks around the room and goes, okay, but what about the operational systems that have to like process inventory or serve real-time model inferencing and make product recommendations? And they kind of go like, ah, whatever, that's operational stuff. There is this really, I think, challenging gap between operational data infrastructure, MySQL, Postgres, Cassandra, Cockroach, like the big long list of single store, whatever it is, and then the analytical world, which is like Snowflake Databricks. And these days, an increasing number of purpose-built systems, Apache Pino slash StarTree, Apache Druid slash Imply, Rockset, there's all these really interesting analytical database systems that are sort of like scaling in that direction.
0: And yeah, Trino and Presto with Starburst.
1: And everybody's eventually going to argue that there's one thing they can do all of this that tends to not be the case. So with Decodable, it was like, can we solve this problem by and it's not necessarily firing rockets into space, the idea at least, it's like, you've got a bunch of storage systems, you've got a bunch of destination systems. Can we be as neutral and database and data infrastructure system agnostic and say, we're gonna be the network vendor. We're gonna give you a bunch of ports, you plug whatever you want into those ports, and then we will do packet mangling, routing, and all of the sort of stuff in between the ports. And it doesn't matter if it's Cisco or F5 or whatever it is, we're going to connect those systems. And so for us, those systems are operational databases, streaming systems like Pulsar and Kafka, and our layer seven packet mangling engine is Apache Flink. That's the thing that we use to slice and dice packets and aggregate them and discard packets and filter them and mask them and all the other kinds of stuff. If you think about it like networking, decoupling those systems and allowing someone from a software perspective to program the routes and the flows between those things. And then being able to delegate subsegments of that network to a smaller group of people who say like, this is your New York office, you get to control the network in New York, I control the backplane of the network. And if you think about it, that's actually how enterprises work. That's like a convoluted long explanation of what we're trying to do. But ultimately, the thing about Decodable was just like, let's connect systems, let's process the data between them. Apache Flink is the right engine and SQL is the language for programming the engine. It's as simple as that. It doesn't need to be any more complicated. The trick is getting it right so that people can think about that part of the data infrastructure the way they think about the network. They don't question whether the packet makes it to the other side because that infrastructure is so burned in and it scales reasonably well these days that you don't even think about it, especially in the cloud. And then governance and other things cause you to lock that down in sort of various ways. So it was really about ingest or stream processing or whatever you want to call it. That's what we do. We mangle packets. We mangle events in between sources and syncs. And we do it in SQL and we do it at scale. It's as simple as that. And I'm just like simultaneously in love with
0: and hate this problem, this domain. Once you've seen it, you can't look away, but you really want to. The combination of sort of the anthropology that you're bringing, how enterprises actually work is essential here. We kind of see the need for a devolution of power, right? When we try to pull control into central IT, yes, those systems can get really strong and they can get politically very resistant to change, but eventually, right, you'll end up having this sort of revolution in the margins, right? In the lines of business, the same things that brought us cloud with shadow IT, So this idea that you're attacking this with this whole point of view that you can have distributed, delegated authorization that, hey, you're on site, you're at the edge, you know more than I do. You just go wild. And if you screw up, you'll have the tools to recover like you deal with that. I'm just going to make sure that when things hit my area, I do a good job of taking care of the concerns that I've been granted. So it seems really thoughtful, the combination of the technology and the people. To kind of highlight something when I talked about before around almost Conway's law, that so much of what we deal with in software, yes, it's technically deeply complex. The people interactions, how we choose to communicate, whether or not we want to have a meeting, whether or not we want to actually collaborate and design this thing has a bigger influence on the systems that we can build. I fundamentally believe that the natural state of services, of software,
1: and data is distributed. And the people who are responsible for it fundamentally want to be able to use it the way that they want to use it. I was part of the group of people who told you, to like, put it all in HDFS. It's like, I recognize that. I own that. Here's the thing. like, Pitchforks, Torchaz, if... Right, right. I will not be giving refunds, but you can sort of yell at me if you're mad about it. I think fundamentally in the data warehouse, there's always schemas on schemas. And you see this now, you and I were talking about it before we got started, but things like DuckDB and SQLite, like there's this constant, like, well, my environment is Python, yours is Java, I write Go. Everybody picks different tech stacks because they're solving for different problems. And so fundamentally, rather than try and force everyone into one homogenous middle ground that doesn't work for anybody, what if we said, we're gonna give you the tools to productionify shadow data? Because I fundamentally believe that the cloud has productionized shadow IT. The fact that like random teams can go deploy services these days, we're like, oh my God, how would you live without that? I think that's come into data. And it's coming fast and it's coming hard. And so the idea that there's going to be more destinations, more sources, not fewer. And so the issue isn't how do you stop it from happening? It's how do you get a handle on that complexity so that you can make it look more like the cloud For better and worse, I guess, unless like a committee where you present your schema change and 57 people have to agree to that schema change before you can add a column, right? Nobody wants to do business in that world. I just fundamentally think that this stuff is going to be distributed. Data is going to look like microservices, not like monolithic warehouses. I just think that that's the case.
0: It's funny. We often talk about democratization of data, but the flip side is that what we need is the capital efficiency or the capitalism of data. It's just not very good in terms of managing capital to have 57 people making the decision on a consensus basis. Because we all know from divergence, convergence, that equation will never converge. There will have reasons to defer the decision for several years to come. But Eric Brewer, the creator of the Cap Theorem and many other things like Google Spanner and the sponsor for Kubernetes, had a very similar observation on a podcast we did a while ago that the future of data is more copies more locally owned versions that more people can experiment with because the value that each can get from experimenting with the data instead of having to mess with some central organization or mess up the copy or even learn it this idea of shadow data actually being more valuable because your cycle time your iteration cost your exploration economics are all so much better you can have killer breakthroughs and so our job now as technologists is to do what you're doing which is to make lots of small pieces Loosely joined, connecting faster, and making it awesome. What big problems do you think we're going to have to solve over the next five years? we are in that moment where you have to lean into a technology, build a company to solve a problem that you understand well, but the market doesn't get. As this stuff becomes mature, right, the market will, in some ways, be people who see things in five years the way that you see them now. In some ways, it'll be you learning what actually produces value or what technologies come up and surprise you or bite you. You have a sense for where we need to go with streaming processing, what's not working and what's gonna force us to change it? Fundamentally, like people knock stream processing for
1: good reasons sometimes. I mean, historically it has been more complicated than the batch counterpart. And not necessarily like purely technically, but really because there are certain kinds of problems I think you can push to the side with batch processing that are probably more natural to think about in these coarse-grained iterations of data pipelines. So you get into questions about watermarking and exactly once messaging and processing and like this whole nasty sort of sub-genre of distributed systems and databases. A couple of things. One, people in my position need to recognize that you can't just say this is the better world. You actually have to help people get it there. And, like, as an engineer, you're like, well, of course, you just need to learn it. There's a little bit of, oh, you just need to read the docs. And I think we need to graduate out of that. And I think many people have, don't get me wrong, and sort of switch to this notion of, no, we're going to meet people where they are, and we are going to put up the right kinds of guardrails and infrastructure. Because stream processing today is, like, analogous to relational database systems 20, 30 years ago where you didn't buy a relational database system, you built a relational database system, right? Maybe I'm being generous to myself. Maybe it's more like 30, 40 years ago. But there was a time where companies didn't buy these things. They built them. You actually had to like design for these things. And like you knew all of the corner cases, and only experts used them. And that, I believe, is where stream processing is today. I believe that people who use these things, use them because they know every kind of weird corner case. And I think we need to simplify the user experience, make the semantics easier to understand. We need to actually fundamentally change the processing model so that it's like inherently understands things like change data capture data, because so much of the world is not discrete immutable events, but actually changes to other data sets. This is a big aha moment, which is also like, duh, we're not the first ones to figure this out. I think everybody kind of knows it, but like we're starting to make a little bit of progress around sort of like helping people to understand it that way and then sort of teach people how to think in those kinds of patterns. But also data quality, governance, a lot of these things actually do look a little bit different in streaming and real time rather than in batch. You don't land a data set and then look at the stats and then go, okay, this is good to go and then process it in the streaming context, right? your entire world is just moving and changing constantly. And
0: it's just more complicated than that. What it sounds like to me is that we're going to be shifting left on stream processing, that the illities and the techniques feel more like development than they do like data science or analytics, which are more batch oriented, even the way a Jupyter notebook works. And the way that you develop that feels more, more batchy. And so transforming that entire field of practice into something that's real time feels like a pretty long leap. I mean, that feels like a couple decade change in practices, not a few years change in practice. I want to ask you a really sharp question on Flink. So Flink is a technology that many people have heard of, not that many people have used, but it's coming at a time when streaming is coming to the front of every serious application. Every business that's become 2020's digital business has got an enormous amount of live information. They want to filter it. They want to process it as it's in the stream. They need to reroute it, they need to copy it, they need to do a million things. Whether you're building a TikTok clone or an e-commerce infrastructure or a music streaming service or any way that you're talking with IoT devices, you're talking to tractors, it's an incredibly important thing. And it seems like Flink is doing the Spark streaming, what Spark did to Hadoop right? Substantially easier to use, substantially faster, better unit economics. But why? And I would preface this with Spark does a
1: lot of things really well for sort of batch or ad hoc analytics. It's just fundamentally better than Flink in a bunch of ways. I think Flink made a different set of trade-offs. And I wasn't privy to sort of the early days of Flink. But my understanding is, and certainly when you look at the engine, like everything about it is streaming first. And so the reason why I say that is the way it handles state management, the assumption that runtime performance is more important than startup time. Every optimization that it has made, it has made for not fast startup. It's, it's actually terrible uh, startup times compared to things like Spark and stuff like that. I think that the team who worked on Flank really emphasized this notion of streaming first and sort of built and made all those trade-offs around that. That said, it's not perfect. There are definitely places where things feel a little bit bolted on is the wrong word, but like Flink does a lot, right? Just like Spark, it's got all these libraries and different layers that have been built on top of it. And you can feel the seams in a couple of places. In a lot of ways, Flink has all of the capabilities you want But, you know, it suffers a little bit from the box of knives problem. It's really, really sharp, and you probably don't want to shove your hand in it too deeply, which is why I think there's value in what we do. But it keeps state locally in, like, these checkpointed databases. It does whatever it can asynchronously. It it flushes all state to an external object store in all these different cases. It has a thousand tunable options about, like, how... You can sort of play with the trade-offs that it makes, the way it does its checkpoints and threads them through the entire job. I don't know that this makes it sort of faster, but it definitely makes it more correct in a bunch of failure cases. It's not a perfect system, but it sure does get arguably the hardest parts very right. And it's been tested at mammoth scale by some of the public users like Netflix and Apple and Stripe and Lyft and Uber, almost any business that is fundamentally a real-time business. I think DoorDash is also a fling shop, right? These are all sort of fundamentally real-time businesses by design, and it's incredibly good at those use cases.
0: Yeah, for me, that's part of the definition, in my mind, of open source data, which is it's been tested at embarrassing scale. Right. And some of the edge cases that you might not normally as a user hit for five years of operation, right? Those have already been hit. They've been ironed out. It's been hardened, right? There's a config setting. So you've been amazingly generous with your time. I know that you're busy solving hard problems. I'm really curious to know what piece of advice would you give our audience? I think a bunch of people are going to be pretty psyched about the future of data, about stream processing, about Flink in particular, and sort of large-scale data architectures in general. Many folks are trying to figure out how do I do the next more difficult thing or right how do i advance my career i think is always a germane to all of us so i'm curious what advice would you offer folks
1: my sense is that the community of people that are listening to this myself included look at this and they see all the technical problems and you and i were joking about this before we got started but i got to tell you the technology challenges are minuscule compared to the organizational the operational, the human challenges. I think as engineers, we get enamored of vector clocks and distributed checkpointing systems and stuff like that, and Rust versus Go debates or whatever it is that the internet is raging about at any given moment. But I really think that the thing that will stop any organization dead in its tracks, whether it's with stream processing, Apache Flink, or any piece of open source technology is the people component and the organizational component. I made this joke that like, I think that we probably need more humanities majors than we need comp sci majors in our world. I know you get that. I worry sometimes that we don't think enough about who are my users? What knowledge do they have? How much time do they have to spend on this problem? Do they care about this weird workflow that I think they should follow? No. They don't care about any of this stuff. The ML people want to work in Python and God help you if you try and stop them. I think we, as people who build and participate in like the open source data infrastructure world need to understand who it is we're building for. And the fact that they mostly don't care about the things that we care about sometimes when we build these systems and that we're not building for us, we're building for them. And I don't know that we always do a good job of that. In a lot of ways, I think the technical stuff gets solved because the assumption is that like that's our job. And so there's enough attention on the technical stuff. The stuff that there's not enough attention on is building and growing communities about how do you support this stuff? How do you support your users and like what they're trying to do? How do you make trade-offs when building these kinds of systems? I think every open-source project is convinced they're going to solve every conceivable problem. I actually think that like the be- most successful open-source projects go, we don't do that. They basically do what companies do. You are outside of my ideal customer profile. I can't help you. I'm going to make a reference. I used to be a music teacher. I'm a musician by some form of trade. The music's as much in the rests as it is in the notes, right? Like You have to decide what not to do to make what you do do count. I think that those are the kinds of things that at least I think a lot about. And then, of course, you surround yourself with people who care a lot about Rust versus Go, and they naturally solve those problems, that's for sure.
0: That is awesome. Eric, thank you so much. It's been a whirlwind ride through the history of open source data and peek at the future. And I couldn't agree more that the more that we can pick up our asymmetry on knowing less about people than we do about the technology and started to focus on asking the anthropology and the humanities questions. We're more likely to create better software and a better industry if we do that. So I'm super grateful for your time, man. It's fantastic to see what you built at Decodable. Thanks so much, Sam. I appreciate it. Now I'm backstage with our executive producer, Audra Montenegro. Audra, what stood out to you in this conversation?
2: I really loved... Eric's curiosity and drive when he was younger and starting his career using MapReduce and super curious, researching the team of Cloudera and happening to get a free ticket to Hadoop World. And from there, he networked and landed the engineering manager role at Cloudera. And what I found was cool was he went from what he says, a high school dropout, to being pulled into a strong academic world of big data. And he just couldn't stop drinking the Kool Aid of distributed systems from there. I get that. And what's inspiring me now is Eric's bravery. Having started Rakana gave him great insight into how to build a startup, but more importantly, he saw the gap in the market we now call observability. Then Splunk acquired Rakana, and there he observed that while the data warehousing stack is orderly, the new world of streaming is chaos. So here he is, brave again, founding Decodable to bring order to that chaos. And they're designing their distributed software, focusing on the distributed people who need to use it. Thank you. And a big thanks to our audience, too, for joining us today. If you liked the show, please subscribe and give the podcast a five-star rating on your favorite platform.
0: We'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. Please drop me a tweet at OSD underscore podcast. And a special thanks to the Caspian Studios team, our producer, Alexa Minter. For program management, Videm Yuri and Kyle Ruska. For audio and visual engineering, Scott Goodrich and Evan Ha, as well as creative producer, Landon Pontius. And of course, the DataStacks team, including social leader, Lauren Gohl, and Katie Asher with the web design team. Thanks again for listening. Catch you on the next episode of Open Source Data.